We'll be reading this morning from Philippians 4 through the chapter in. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, I urge Yodia and I urge Synthesiki, live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared the struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak for want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received, if I have received anything in full and have an, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that we will live such a life that we realize our citizenship is not here. It's in your kingdom. Help us, Father, to live in unity um, and to love, be ready to forgive, to let things go, to encourage one another, to put aside petty differences. Help us to live like Christ so that because you're near to us and with us, that even in troubled times, others can see it and maybe desire to, to know you because they see something different in us. Help us live that way like you, Lord Jesus, lived on earth. Help us live like you. We ask in your name to the Father. Amen. Amen.
Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. So this is the sixth and final message in the book of Philippians at CBC. Hopefully, God has used this in your life to grow you, to change you, so you love him more and look forward to his appearing. Uh, Today, I'm going to dispense with the review up front because it's coming at the end, since it is the last uh, message in our series. I just want to talk about chapter 4 right away. We all have so many needs, so very many needs, whether you're young or old, whether you're a shepherd, my youngest son's age, and you need everything, even help with diapers, to adults in the middle age who may not realize it as much, to those who are about to be with the Lord as believers. We all have so many needs, physical needs, spiritual needs. As long as we're alive, we'll have needs. And actually, even after death, because we aren't God, we'll rely on him to meet our needs as creatures. In this passage, Philippians 4, all of it, I see united by this theme, the needs that we have and how God meets these many needs. There was an old Christian widow who lived in a duplex, and she would come out onto her front porch every morning and sit down and begin to pray and loudly at the end close her prayer with praise the Lord. Well, it just so happened that there was an atheist neighbor, a young man next door, who got sick and tired of her praying and hearing that every morning. So he would go out on the front porch when she said that and say, there is no God at the end of her prayer. And this went on for a while. And as time went by, uh, her savings, because of inflation or whatever you want to say, <laughs> ran out. And so one morning she was out on her porch praying that God would meet her needs for food and all the things she needed to do, bills to pay. And the atheist man hears this prayer. And so he says, ha, I've got you now. And he went out and bought some groceries and put them on the front porch. And he's like, I'm going to hide in the bushes. And when she says, praise God, I'm going to jump out. So she comes out. And she's like, oh, thank you, Lord, for providing. He's like, ha, I bought those groceries. God didn't provide them. And she quickly said, Lord, I praise you that you provided for my needs and you used Satan to do it. (laughs) Yeah, got him, as the young people would say. You know, that's, that's really what Philippians 4 is about as I see it. How God meets our every need, and we are so needy. So, if you'll turn with me, we're going to walk through Philippians chapter 4, a verse at a time here, or a couple verses at a time. And the first need, this should be no surprise to you, uh, I hope, (laughs) is unity. Uh, We all need unity because we disagree with other people. Um, We're wrong, and others are wrong, and we need to agree about things. You know, I was going to play a video because I think it fits our time, but I Googled, I searched up fights in church, and I was just actually really sad about it because there are so many on YouTube, you know? So instead, I don't think that was edifying. I'll just tell you a story from a good friend, Raj Godi. Some of you know him. And I think I'm uh, telling this right. I'm sure he'll send me a message from India on Signal if I'm wrong. But he told me a story about when he was growing up in a Lutheran church in southern India. He remembered one time there was so much fighting about finances in the church that actual chairs were thrown at other people and that the police were called in to solve that problem. 
I remember when I was in India, there was uh, a lady who we loved a lot. And um, she had actually had such a, a disunified relationship with someone in the church, an elder, that they hadn't spoken in years. And the funny thing was they attended the same church. They did ministry together at an orphanage, but they hadn't spoken together for years. It was so sad to see that. I'm sure you can think of people and times in your life where you've needed unity and you need the Lord to provide for that. The church in Philippi was quite possibly about to split. That's one of the options I think is probable. Two factions, at least. We have these two ladies who are disagreeing about something so important that Paul felt it necessary to call them out. But I want to I wanna help us, I think, at least what helped me, think about these ladies a little differently instead of just all negatively. Think about it this way. If I was to call out someone from the pulpit, I better have a very good relationship with them. Sometimes I mention names. They aren't people that I'm just acquainted with. They're people that are dear to my heart, right? Like one of my good friends, Robert Warner, says, you better have a lot of coins in the jar in a relationship if you're going to call someone out, right? It's like that investment in someone that allows you to speak into their life at this level. And actually, yes, they needed unity, but if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, how does he speak to these people? They are his joy and his crown. They are very dear to his heart. And so, These people, while they are disagreeing about something that isn't necessarily mentioned, along with Clement and all these other guys that he mentions and ladies, I think they are really close to him. He says they worked with him in the gospel. It's like a missionary's friend going into difficult circumstances, ministering the gospel. And so I don't don't necessarily... Think of them in a, in a negative light now because we all get into disagreements. He just wants them to agree, right? He doesn't think of them as enemies, as it were. He thinks of them as friends who he wants to agree. And he's very careful about how he begins this in our text. He says, right, I entreat Yodia. And he used the exact same language for Syntyche. I entreat Syntyche. He's very, the, the verb is present, which is unusual in Greek, for both people. He's singling them out, making sure that they feel heard, making sure that they understand he's talking to them specifically. Paul didn't want this church to continue in this schismatic way, in this fighting way, in this disagreeable manner, and he didn't want it to split. And so he's basically begging them, hey, please put aside your differences. What if the whole letter of Philippians... Try this on. I could be wrong, but this is the way I'm thinking now. Some help some other people. What if the whole letter was leading up to this big ask? You know, think about it this way. I have kids. Maybe you don't. Maybe your kids are long gone. But you could think about it as a boss or a good friend or even your brother or sister. When they come up to you and they start a conversation, but then very quickly you realize... (laughs) They're going to ask you something because they start to talk to you about all the good things they've done for you or all the good things you've done for them, <laughs> right? My kids are like, hey, Dad, you remember that I mowed the lawn? I'm like, oh, that's great. And Hezekiah doesn't stop. He's, you remember that I was really obedient and cleaned the table last night? You remember how you promised that we get a reward for that? You remember how I like boba so much, right? And, and I, you see where it's going, right? I think... A big goal of Paul's in this letter was to give the groundwork 
so that he could ask this big thing of these ladies in the church so they wouldn't split. And so he's leading up to this. He says, you know what? Agree in the Lord. And one of the ladies at the uh, preaching breakfast had a really good comment about this. It's like, you know, if my kids are fighting or if I'm in a disagreement with someone, we're just like, hey, just be nice. You know, be kind to one another, right? We're all worked up and usually a parent will be like, hey, be nice, be nice, just be kind. That is not what Paul says. Sir, he's going to say a little bit of that later. What does he say? Agree in the Lord. That is not just be nice to one another. That is a reminder of an eternal reality that both of these people share of salvation. It's a high calling. It's not just be nice. It's agree in the Lord. It goes way beyond niceness and kindness. And I think there are two things that we can say that God provides to meet our need of unity. Number one, he provides friends and peacemakers in the local church to solve these disputes. He gifts people that are skilled to be peacemakers in our church. I don't know if you're one of them, but praise God for you. And that's what he asks of Clement and this other person who's not named. And actually, the way I read it, everyone there, they're to work for peace, to be peacemakers in a difficult situation. And God gives them to us. Think about Matthew 5, 9. said, what blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's an amazing reality that God gifts to us. He gives many gifts, diverse gifts to the body of Christ for the advance of the gospel. And one of them is peacemakers, those people who work for the peace of the local body. So that's the first one. But even more so, in an offhand comment almost that I, I don't know, I don't know if it's my personality or not. I just find it funny as I was reading, I didn't even catch it at first. But what does he add at the end of this section? He says, by the way, your names are written in the book of life. (laughs) That's the reality. He reminds them, as he reminds us when we're in disagreements, that we have eternal life. And that is the greatest provision and greatest need that we have. And so... It's almost funny, right? When you're sitting here arguing with someone and, the, and there's a great reality between your fight, like, oh, my child is in trouble. It just immediately stops that disagreement or whatever. How much greater for these ladies who are fighting is it when Paul reminds them, you know what? You're both believers. You know, if God were not gracious, there'd be a lot of blushing in the kingdom because of the fighting we've done. But the reality is we don't have to have that blushing because the Lord Jesus reigns and he has provided eternal life to us and all of our petty grievances and some not so petty, all of our disagreements pale in comparison to the reality of eternal life that God has provided. And that is what he's trying to get them to see. When we need unity, let's look humbly at the reality of our eternal life that God has given us. And, and actually, I put up 21 through 23 there because I think there's kind of a bookends here. As he ends the letter, he says, you know what? Guess what? Despite the disagreements, the gospel is advancing so much so that the household of Caesar, some of them at least, have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. In light of that, That is an amazing, like the king, the president's family has come to trust Christ. Holy, wow. Like, okay, my disagreement with my brother or sister is small in light of that. 
pursuing salvation and eternal life. That is where he is going in this chapter primarily. So that's the first need. We have a need for unity. We accomplish that in humility, looking at the reality of eternal life. The second thing is we need peace. And this is verses 4 through 7. And so God provides a guard for our heart and mind. How does he do that here in the text? Prayer. Prayer. God guards our hearts and minds and gives us peace through prayer. I found that very interesting. You know, there's some comparisons in the text. A lot of translations will say in verse 5, reasonable. You know, let your reasonable... Actually, the word is kindness. It's Reasonable is kind of a subset of that. Like It's like when someone hits your car and starts insulting you for being the one who did it, though you didn't, and having the attitude here, follow me now. What has Paul said in Philippians? Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, right? Consider yourself in humility less important than another person. It's having that mindset that comes through prayer that says this other person and what God is going to do with them are more important. And anxiety threatens us in this. It says, do not be anxious or fear, some say, if we don't remember what I just said in, in the first couple of verses, that we have eternal life. And then go to the Father and make our requests be known to him. You know, think about a crazy situation, maybe. I don't, I don't know all your lives, but think about a situation recently where it was just out of control. What did you do? Maybe your car was stolen. Maybe there was a great fight in your house. Maybe your car blew up, <laughs> as someone's did this week here in the body. What was your first go? I had a humbling experience this week at youth group along those lines. Um, some of you are smiling because you were there. Uh, the first 20 minutes or first 15 minutes of my message to the high school was great. People were extraordinarily attentive. And then it all went away. There was a fit of giggling that happened in the high school and didn't stop. And I tried all the tools in my bag to make it stop in my own strength. And it didn't work. And if someone said, preacher, preach to yourself, that's what happened. In that, I stopped and prayed. That's what I should have done from the very beginning. But I just stopped and prayed. And you know what? Man, a peace came over me. I'm like, you know what? As embarrassing as this is, I think I should have control. I didn't. God's the one in control. As humbling as that is, you know what? Just going to the Lord solved that in my own heart. It didn't solve all the giggling. It happened. It's there. Some of it still. Some of it got solved. We were able to move on. I don't know, in your lives, I'm sure there are similar times and places where you just need to stop, you don't have peace, and go to the Lord in prayer, and he will give you that peace and guard your hearts and minds and help you to see it from a godly perspective. Again, have that mindset. And I think another contrast here is we think, I know at least, let me speak for myself, I think sometimes that I'm going to reason my way out of it. Right? I'm going to reason my way out of that situation. I'm going to get my way out of it by my own strength. No, Paul says, you know what? Depend on the Lord. A lot of times we'll never know why difficult or tragic things happen in our lives. But we can still have this peace if we come to the Lord and ask him for it. And so he meets that need through prayer. 
He guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I want to camp here for a second and talk about what I would call the great acceptable sin of America, anxiety, fear. Think about it. We almost speak to each other in ways that confirm this sin. And we're like having a hard time. I'm worried about that person. I'm afraid for them. I think the Bible speaks directly against that. Anxiety is really a product of fear and, just like legalism, mistrust. I love 1 Peter 5. Think about, as I read this, the connection between humility and fear. This is for Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And this is it, verse 7. And casting all your anxieties on him. Philippians 4, you follow that? Because why? He cares for you. He cares for you. And so you get to a place of anxiety and fear when you don't trust that God cares for you, no matter your circumstances. Think about Paul. He's in jail, The church that he loves, maybe above all others who support him, his missionary support, maybe the best one, is struggling and they're fighting. But he says, you know what? I know God still cares for me. And I trust him. It's the same for us. Think about Kadesh Barnea. Here's another one. They're out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, about to enter the promised land, and they have anxiety and fear. And only two people come back of the spies and say, yep, God's going to give it to us. The others reject it. And because of that rebellion and fear, they reject the leaders and God judges them. That's what happens with an anxious and fearful life and heart that doesn't trust God. I think for us in particular, a good way to fight this, I know in my life, first of all, there's a memory verse, Philippians 4.19, but a good way to fight this is, in my life, what's the worst that can happen to me? If I'm anxious, I'm going to die. But you know what? God's already taking care of that. I'm going to be raised from the dead. There's nothing that anyone or any circumstance can do to me that will separate me from God. And that is our rock in times like that. Even if I'm homeless on the, at the end of the day on the street, God is for me if I'm in Christ and he will raise me from the dead. Nothing can harm me in him. Philippians 4.19, my God will provide for your every need. And we're getting there, but that is a reality. And so we need not fear. God provides that peace that we need through prayer and remembering our salvation. Next, I'm not going to camp on this one very long, but we need examples. We need examples. We, know, we need to be shown how to act, think, right? We're human. We're not God. It comes to us through Discipleship is really what this is talking about. There's a word here that's very close to mathetes, disciples. Paul doesn't use that word. He just gets really close. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here, that's what he's talking about. And again, and it was cool, the Holy Spirit's at work in the worship, just talking about that example of Christ again, Philippians 2. Have that mindset. What he did, have that same mindset. How he lived, sacrificially. We're going to 
cover that review. Do that. And so God provides in the incarnation not only the atonement for sins that we absolutely have to have, but what? John 13, the pattern of life. And the cool thing here is that's how God provides himself, as it says in the text, but also he provides the body people like you. People that live out that call faithfully so that we have examples to follow. Every single person in Christ who is walking faithfully is an example to follow. Each one of you. And that's a cool thing. That we can look at the faithfulness of other people at CBC and say, you know, that's right. That's how I should live. Because each one of us struggles in different ways and needs help from the Lord. And that's how God provides for that need is through the local body and Christ's example. Obvious, but still need to talk about it. Physical care. We don't eat, we'll die. (laughs) We have money to pay the bills, we'll get kicked out. And so he says, you know what? We need physical care. God provides money and food to keep us dependent on him. And he provides strength. It says, you know what? There's no secret here. One of the guys, one of the brothers said to me this week, and he's right. If the Bible says secret, it's probably not that great of a secret because he's about to tell you what the secret is, right? So many times he's like, "Uh, here's the secret. That's what he says. Here's my secret. God strengthens me. It's not really a secret. It's what he's been saying all of Philippians. He says, God's going to strengthen me. I don't have my own power to persevere in jail or whatever it is. Hard times, good times. And here's, here's something that I think is important for us. Maybe easy times aren't so easy to be strengthened through. Maybe hard times aren't so hard. Maybe it's the easy times that are difficult to realize our dependence on the Lord. And the difficult times, it's easy to realize our dependence on the Lord. I think that's what he's saying. You know, in this difficult time that you're experiencing in Philippi and in my life and your friend Epaphroditus who almost died, it's easy to see our need for the Lord. He's the one who provides for our physical needs as well as spiritual and again, our circumstances are no hindrance. In fact, they're a help. That's what I'm arguing. I think that's what Paul is arguing. He's saying, you know what? You want to depend on the Lord? Your circumstances are not going to stop you. In fact, hard ones are going to be good for you. And it was good for the Philippian church. It was good for Paul to be in jail. The gospel advanced. So hard circumstances in our lives are probably actually a blessing from the Lord. I think here, this is leading into... One thing that he almost doesn't want to do. So he provides for our physical needs. And maybe you're like, what is this? Purpose and meaning and money? How does that connect? Well, hear me out. I think this is the core of what he's saying here in 14 through 18. No, we need great purpose. We need to feel like we are useful in doing what God has asked us to do in life. Without it, we languish. Can't tell you how many high schoolers feel they have no purpose, so they sleep till noon. (laughs) among other things, (laughs) right? We need great purpose. And how does God provide for that? Well, he gives us co-working in the gospel. He gives us the greatest purpose. And he says, you know what? You can even participate financially in that and accomplish the greatest thing that any man or woman could ever do to help people know Jesus Christ. At the end of Philippians here, and i got to say, I agree with Bob and others. who It's almost like he, he doesn't want to talk about money 
But because they gave to him significantly, repeatedly, he has to, in a sense. Yes, he's thankful, but it's not that important in his mind. What's important is what? The advancement of the gospel. And so if you're giving for that, hey, praise God for that. I'm going to walk you through that a little bit here. As he says, here's what a humble, selfless guy does with money and how he thinks about money. First, thinking about the Philippians themselves and their giving. He says that in Thessalonica, you gave at least twice. Thessalonica is like not very far from his trip to Philippi. So what does that mean? Immediately, because of their love for Christ and for Paul, they gave. It wasn't like, let me save up money and wait. No, they were on the edge of their seats with their wallets out. Here, Paul, have some money. You want some more? Here's some more. He says, right? He says to them, hey, you wanted to give. You didn't have an opportunity. So many times I find myself that way with other things like Amazon. Yeah, here, I shell it out. Here you go, have my money. They were saying to Paul, have my money. I want to see Christ worshiped and exalted. I want to see the gospel advance so it's all yours. Out of an overflow of joy in their hearts, they gave. And he says to them, notice again, your money was used well. It may not seem like it from some perspectives because I'm in jail and you had to help me again, but you know what? The Imperial Guard has come to know Christ. People are believers because you gave and supported me. My physical needs were met so that I could have this purpose fulfilled by preaching the gospel. I think it's good to stop and theologically, if you will, talk about money for a second and come at it from this perspective. We give to the things we find worthwhile. Right? We spend money on the things that we think are valuable and purposeful. It's just true. It's a reflection of our heart. And so false teachers prey on this, right? They come out and they, they want two things, basically, money and followers. <laughs> so you can guarantee, like during COVID, there was a certain guy who was like, don't you stop giving. If you lost your job, keep giving money and keep watching me. He literally said that on TV. I'll tell you later if you want to know the name. That's wrong. That's a wrong motive, right? They want money and people to follow them, and they're motivated by greed and guilt. Greed and guilt are the motivators for false preachers. And they prey on you, and they prey on people. Like, that's why those commercials are so moving for the little animals. Man, it's so sad, right? We just, we're guilty that we couldn't help them, or, or worse, people or aid, right? They make us feel guilty. That's a wrong motivation. Or it's reciprocal. The world's way of looking at money is so that I can get something back. So we give, or some people do, so they get a tax break, <laughs> right? They give so they're famous, so they look good, so they get more. Whatever it is, they give for that reason. That's not how God thinks about money. That's not how Paul thought about money. I want to read to you a couple of passages, um, Luke 21 and then 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. First, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's a different perspective. And then I think that fits this church. 
that perspective because of what 2 Corinthians 8 says. Listen here. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Does that ring any bells? Where's Philippi? Macedonia. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, Philippians, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Man, that is a contrast to the world's ways. He always commends the poor, and Jesus talks about the poor giving because they have nothing in this life, but their motivation for giving, whatever it is, just like us, will accrue them eternal reward. If done with the right motives. So the poor in giving are actually rich. What a cool, different way. So the gospel's motivations are a response to grace and mercy, just like we were talking about in worship, a response to what God has done for us. We give not to accrue anything, not because we're earning God's favor, but because he loves us and we love him. And another one is wanting to please Christ and not ourselves. So those are the exact opposite of greed and selfishness, right? The two motivations, the reason why God wants people to give are exactly opposite. Another note on money, and I'm going to quote some Jonathan Edwards here. I've picked easier ones. <laughs> uh, reading the Puritan works can be difficult, but they have a treasure of, of really good things to say about um, America now, I think. Money and wealth, when compared to eternity, seem small. Paul's in jail. What does he care for a million dollars if he doesn't get out? And we don't, none of us knows how much longer we have to live. You need to put money in its right place. This is what Jonathan Edwards said, and I want you to think about these things in regards to how you spend your money, and I've thought about them as well, convicting myself here, but this is what he said. Resolved. He had 70 resolutions. Here are three I've picked that I think reflect on this passage well. And he started all of them with resolved. Resolved. To live with all my might while I do live. The brevity of life while we live Use what God has given us for his glory. The advancement of the gospel. We don't know. If we're, we're not promised another day. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Regarding money, I think those, that's good advice. When you get to your deathbed, whenever that is, some it will come quickly. Money will be the last thing on your mind. And the only thing you can have at that point about how you spent your money really is regret if you didn't spend it well. I think our goals with money are too low. They're too low. They're at the bottom when instead, and maybe you're better than me, this is a struggle for me, I can be using it for eternal glory, for the reward that accrues to those who participate in the gospel with what they have. And money is one of those things. And so God provides meaning and purpose in life, even in money, for the greatest thing, using it for the kingdom. And then here, this is, again, I just see it as a little bit funny. He's like, you know what? I covered a lot of needs, but in case I missed anything, brothers and sisters at Philippi, God will do what? He will provide for your every need, every need. This has been such a rock in my life. I'm up here preaching, and if I get nervous, God will provide for every need of mine. If my kids are fighting, God will provide for every need. If your car blows up this week, God will provide for your every need. If there's a 
you list it, it doesn't leave anything to chance. God provides for your every need. Every need. Everything you need. If he gave us Christ, Romans 8.32, he will also, with him, give us all things that we need. And I love how he ends the book in verse 23. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I think what he's saying is, you know what? Our needs are never going to run out, but God's grace never runs out. Here's something to think about in that regard. You know, Amazon, this thing here, Tom was saying it was made by Amazon. Great thing. They have a lot of products, and they've come a long way since 1997. They were a bookseller then, and I was 17. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Now this e-commerce giant has hundreds of warehouses for numerous distribution purposes throughout the United States and over the world, countries like Canada and Germany. As of 2021, when I, when I did this research, that was the one I found that was the most recent. I'm sure it's more now. But they have their centers average about 800,000 square feet, just one center. And the total of Amazon warehouses in the United States is somewhere around 319 million square feet. That's a lot. Let me put that in perspective for you. It's 11 and a half square miles. 5,555 football fields are about the third of the size of Richardson under a roof. That's a lot of warehouse space. If you stacked dollar bills there, $1,000 bills high, and filled it, it would be enough dollar bills to total $2 trillion, $711 billion, $500 million bills. That would feed you three meals a day for $15 each meal for 450,000 years. Why am I telling you that? That's like God's grace. You can come to his storehouse of grace. I'm thinking about Titus 2.11 here. And you can have grace that never ends. And we don't even have to go to the warehouse. He gives it out of his warehouse to us without us asking, though he would like for us to ask. And so whatever need it is, if you have a need day after day after day after day after day, his grace is sufficient. If you sin repeatedly, his grace is sufficient day after day, sin after sin, forever, and it never runs out. It's not an Amazon warehouse filled with dollars. It's the living God who will never stop giving and never stop being gracious to us. As he's proved at the cross, as he proved in Paul's life, as he proved for the Philippians, it's true of CBC. And each one here, all of us. He keeps giving grace upon grace, and that's what we really need. Because we're weak and we're very needy people. I think it's appropriate at this point to briefly touch on what I see. So what we've done is kind of, to my best of my ability, by the grace of God, walk through the exegetical argument. of In other words, what does Philippians say in the text? Now I want to pull back a little bit and say, what does the book of Philippians teach us about God? Or what is Paul grounding his argument in Philippians on? In other words, what is true about God for them and us? That he's arguing about. Number one, God is purposefully sovereign. Some would call that providence. In other words, God is working all things together for his good and the glory of Jesus Christ. One six, and there are some verses here, you can choose any of them, and I think, I hope you'll see this in the book or have seen it. This is what he says in one six, and I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. God will accomplish his purposes. And he's in control. And so since he has that power to subjugate everything, as it says in three, he has put forward Christ as of supreme worth. God could have set anything up. He said, you know what? Christ is the one to be valued most. 3.8 says this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then, because Jesus is of supreme worth and we want that, we get it by faith. This is what we talked about last week. How do we have Jesus? believe. No work. And this is the very next verse, verse 9 of chapter 3. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Doesn't depend on our circumstances, doesn't depend on our good works, it depends on God. And we, we get Jesus, we gain him by faith. And then finally, Having Christ, when we have him, we can have peace, contentment, joy. The theme of Philippians as far as emotions, joy. Having Jesus leads to joy in the faith. And because we have that, you know, there's a really good way to think about it. That reality, having Jesus, frees us. It's such a freeing reality to be in him and experience that peace that then we can love others, even when they mistreat us. Then we can give generously, even when we're not sure how it's going to be used. Then we can submit to one another in love. Then we can listen to the elders when they tell us, whatever it is, this reality lets us work out our faith in what? Fear and trembling. Humbly work out our faith. And it frees us to pursue a mindset of humility and unity. If you don't have this pyramid, but the reality of Philippians, you're not going to be free to do that. And I can have freedom in Christ in that way. And then, above all that, in doing this, in, in having these realities, then we can accomplish the greatest goal of mankind, right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus Christ is exalted. One guy, John Piper, put it this way, that God is most glorified. We are most satisfied in him. When we treasure Christ, the one who's of supreme worth, it really accomplishes the purpose of mankind overall. To make worshipers. So you see that in Philippians. He's saying, you know what? I feel this way, so in prison, and you and your disagreements and all the struggles, man, yet I have Christ, and I can be content. In all those ways, you and I will accomplish the goal that God has for our lives. So here's the, here's the review that's coming very briefly. Joy from progress. Paul's saying, joy from the advancement of the gospel. He's saying, you know what? We have unity through humility. Looking at life rightly and what Jesus has done, and he is exalted. These are the catchphrases. Use them or not. Maybe they'll come to your mind. Maybe not. Here's the argument of the book. Again, once again, before we pray for hopefully your edification, the Philippians would stand firm. Today we talked about Rejoicing in God's provision, how he meets our needs and being thankful for that. Knowing Christ, chapter 3. Being humble 
and following the joyful pattern of humility. Chapter 2, we broke that down. Christ and other examples. And then chapter 1, rejoicing in advance of the gospel. That's how we also will stand firm. The hindrances to that in our lives. We talked about, I think, maybe the biggest one. Division and then fear. Giving up. I'm going to just leave that up there. Finally, the mindset of Christ. That is the book of Philippians. And so, my closing exhortation is that we would stand firm. Because it's a hard life. And we need the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's... It is joyful to see what we've been given and to see the enormity of our sin as we heard about this morning and realize that it's forgiven because of Christ. Just pray for this church, Lord, each one of us, that we would stand firm, that it can be said of us like it is in 3 John 1, 4, that I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in faith. Lord, we're your children. Help us to walk by faith and to live these things out. In Jesus' name, amen.